we're all, when we're kids, at one point or another, made to apologize, aren't we? Isn't there a point where you did something to your little brother or sister or your cousin or friend, and your parent brings you aside and says, go say you're sorry. And of course, when they tell us that, we, we go to our friend and we say in just complete and utter remorse and disgrace over our sin, we say, I'm brokenhearted, I'm torn up over this grievance that I've caused you, and I, I pray that you would forgive me, my friend, and restore your relationship with me. Not really. It really comes across as, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? We really mean it, don't we? You know, I think as parents, it's, it's difficult because you want to teach your kid to say you're sorry. But inevitably, it doesn't come out the way you really want it to, does it? They go to their friend and, or their brother or their sister and they say, and their face and their body and their everything about them says everything other than, I'm sorry. It actually says, I'm kind of glad I did it. And if I had the opportunity to do it again, I probably would. And what we really want as parents, even when we teach our kids these kind of outward forms of apology, we really want the heart to be sorry, don't we? We really want contrition. That's what we're going for. And we don't know how to do that. Because, to be honest with you, you can't really parent contrition. At least it's very difficult to, and maybe impossible. In our passage this morning, what we're looking at is something that on the outside seems like a, a story we're familiar with, but at its heart, it is a very simple message that I'm going to do my best not to overcomplicate, which in, inevitably I will do. What we're looking at here is a king who has been chosen by God to lead the nation of Israel, who in a moment of, maybe you want to call it weakness, is contrite. And it's that little image of a king that makes a world of difference for a nation. By the time you get to the end of a book, if, especially of the Bible, what you expect to see the author doing is calling back to some images that he's brought up along the way. And that's no different in every book of the Bible. You're going to see, by the time you get to the end of the book, some of these loose ends that were opened up, some of these storylines that were opened up at the very beginning, starting to come to fulfillment, and the author starting to tie a lot of these together. Well, as we go through First and Second Samuel, and we do so going chapter by chapter almost, we go week by week, it can be really difficult for us to keep track of all of those threads that the author has opened up. It becomes challenging because, to be honest with you, you go on vacation or you miss one week or maybe it's just a lot of time has lapsed and you forget what happened earlier in the book that helps bring all of these things together. But one theme that you may notice as you read through First and Second Samuel, if you're really paying attention, is this theme of outward versus inward appearance. Outward versus inward appearance. See, one is the way man judges things, and the other is the way God judges things. 
And this is illustrated for us in several ways throughout the book. And if you're paying attention, you'll see it on a lot of pages in 1 Samuel especially. But when we pay attention, we're frequently told stories where the righteous person is misjudged by the people in the story. Or even an unrighteous person is thought of well when maybe they shouldn't be. Take, for example, Hannah. Remember the the book opens with Hannah, and she is without child. She's barren. And her rival in the marriage, yes, there's more than one wife in the marriage, uh, won't be the last time we encounter that, and we'll talk more about it when we get into 2 Samuel. But nonetheless, the book opens. She's without a child. Her rival, Penina, continues to mock her because she is barren in the marriage. And one day, she has just, she's at her wit's end. She's had enough. And she can't get pregnant. She gets up from the table. She refuses to eat with her family. She gets up from the table and she walks away. And as she walks away, she's crying. She is just in agony because she has no child. And so she's crying and she's in tears and she's praying. And apparently she's mouthing these words in her prayer under her breath. And lo and behold, she crosses the path of the less than righteous Eli who is a priest, but he's not that great. And this is what Eli says to her in chapter 1, verse 14. How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. He thinks she's drunk out in the middle of the town square as she's praying. But you see, Hannah is actually righteous. And in her purity of heart, she's begging God for a child. And the less than righteous Eli looks on her from the outside and concludes by looking at the outside appearance quite the opposite of her being righteous. And what we find out is that he not only thinks she's a worthless woman, but God actually looks at Hannah and sees the heart of the situation and actually grants her request and opens her womb and gives her a child. Or what about Saul? Remember when Saul is selected as king? This is how he's described to us. In 1 Samuel 9, verse 2. And Kish had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. You're supposed to be impressed by that. I'm supposed to be impressed by that. But more importantly, the people of Israel are definitely impressed By the way, Saul looks, I mean, he's handsome, he's rich, he's tall. Everyone looking at this guy is under the impression that he is perfectly fit to lead the people of Israel into battle and to lead them against their enemies. He's like a miniature Goliath, who we see later on in the story, except he's fighting for the good guys. So judging by the outward appearance... Saul seems to be amazing. But when they go to name him king, remember he's hiding out among the baggage. Where'd Saul go? Anybody see Saul? Judging by the outward appearance, Saul is everything we could have hoped for in a king. He's tall, he's strong. But inwardly, Saul is a colossal failure. We see him fail time and again, but but not really militarily. Remember, Saul is a great fighter. He actually leads many uh, uh, battles and and actually leads many victories for God's people. 
It's not his military strength and might that fail. It's his character. It fails time and again. Inwardly, he's wasting away. He refuses to listen to God time and again and would rather listen to the voice of the people. His heart is not set on God, but outwardly, he looks like it should be. What about David when he's selected as king? Remember how young and how small he was? Here's how unimpressive David was. When Samuel comes to town and tells Jesse, who is David's father, that he wants to meet all of his sons because I think one of them might be king, David, who is the youngest of the brothers, doesn't even get an invitation. That's how unimpressive David is. So he's left out, and his dad leaves him to tend the sheep. Ah, he's unimpressive. He still plays with G.I. Joes and watches Saturday morning cartoons. You wouldn't be interested in him. Even Samuel gets caught up in it. Remember? He looks at Jesse's sons, and he sees Eliab, who is the oldest and strongest, and he see, he's the tallest, and he's good-looking, and he says in his, in his heart and his mind, this has got to be the one. This is the one that God brought me out here to anoint. And God whispers in Samuel's ear, and he explains this theme to us that's running through the book. He says in 16.7, Do not look on his outward appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So Jesse calls David to him. And David walks up and God says, this guy is the one. And we're left thinking, this kid? The one with the Pokemon lunchbox? That guy is going to be the king over all of Israel? So again, we realize that all man has is this outward appearance to look upon. And yet God doesn't even consider the outward appearance, but looks inwardly. He's judging the heart of man. And when he comes to the heart of man, David actually fits the bill for the king. And then in the very next scene, Israel is gathered on the field of battle. They're getting ready to fight Goliath. And there again, looking on the outward appearance of this giant who's over nine feet tall and he's fierce and nobody can beat him. And David comes out to the battle, battlefield to deliver food to his brothers. His, his father sent him out there to deliver food. And he sees all of Israel's army and they're standing on the sideline and they're looking out across the valley of Elah and they're like, we can't go over there and fight. And David just plainly sees uh, which one of y'all are going to stand up and actually go over there and fight this guy who defies the armies of the living God. And do you remember that his oldest brother, Eliab, same one from the last chapter, turns around because he hears him say this. And this is what he says to him in 1728. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? That's an insult, by the way. I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. You see what he's saying? I actually see past the outward appearance of what you're saying. I can see your heart, and I know that your heart is evil. But really, in all actuality, Eliab just sees the outward appearance of the situation, and he assumes, because of his judgment of the outward appearance, that he actually does see the inward person inside David's heart, and he calls David's heart evil. But you understand, this is in 
drastic opposition to what God has just said about David in the previous chapter. He's not evaluated David's heart that way. In fact, he's seen David's heart as being after his own heart. So time and again, the message is reiterated to us that man looks on the outward appearance, but God's concern is for the heart of the person. Little does Eliab know David has had the Spirit of God rush upon him, and he is getting ready to go out on this battlefield and take down the mighty Goliath. This point actually comes to bear on the passage that we're looking at this morning. See, David is still on the run from Saul, who wants to kill him. He's dead set on killing him. And when this passage opens, David is in En Gedi, where we left him last week. And if you'll remember from the image that I displayed last week, in En Gedi, which is still a place you can visit today, there are cliff sides and hillsides, and there's plenty of caves up in these cliffs for people to hide in. And so David is in probably one of these caves on the cliff side, and he's hiding with his men. And in Engedi, there's plenty of water. It's green for any uh, uh, livestock that they have to, to eat. It's a perfect place for David and his men. And, and it, this, this passage opens up in two scenes, really. And in the first of the two scenes in this passage, Saul has to go to the bathroom, and so he ducks off into one of these caves. And unbeknownst to him, the cave that he ducks off into, wouldn't you know, is the very same cave that David and his men happen to be hiding out in. The ESV tells us that Saul went in there to relieve himself, and literally the phrase is, cover his feet. And I'm not trying to be awkward here or anything like that, but it just emphasizes that Saul is in what you might call a precarious and vulnerable position. And I'm sure David and his men are probably very surprised that Saul has come into this cave and happened to find out where they were. So David and his men are, are watching him from their dark hiding spot. And, and look at what one of the men turns to David and says in verse 4. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day. You can sense they're whispering, right? Here is the day which the Lord has said to you. Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. So Saul is in the midst of this very vulnerable circumstance. And, and David's men tell him, look, the Lord is giving Saul into your hand. Look how obvious this is. Now, here's the twist, though. We don't ever hear a command from the Lord or a statement from the Lord to David that says, I'm going to give your, your enemy into your hand. It's possible that David was told this and his men knew about it, but we're not told in the book of 1 Samuel. More likely is that David's men, who are probably a lot like Job's friends, are looking at the outward appearance of the situation and they're assuming what God has done for David. He has given your enemy into your hand. He's brought him into this cave. What are the odds? Look at how impossible this situation is. And yet, here we find ourselves. Our troubles are over. We've got him now. David, take your knife and slit his throat. So David sneaks up behind him and cuts off part of his robe. But you see, he immediately regrets that decision. Look at verse 5. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, 
The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. You know how preposterous this is? Especially in this time period. In any time period, but especially in this one. For a person to have their enemy given into their hand and opt not to take it. Not only to opt not to take it, but then to persuade his men, don't attack Saul, even though he is chasing after us, even though he has tried to pin me to a wall with a spear twice, even though he has said to all his men, he wants me dead, I don't want you to touch a hair on his head. Can you understand how crazy that is? What has happened here that has caused him to have that kind of disposition toward the man who wants him dead? A person's metal, that is what kind of stuff he's made of, is tested in the fires of affliction. And David is in the midst of the fires of affliction, there's no doubt. David has been overlooked. He's been unwelcome. And he's been downright accused of having an evil heart by every person in this book. But what did God say about David? When God looked at David and measured him up, what did God say about David? Not what everybody else said. What did God say about David? And God said that he looked at David's heart and that he was the king. God told Samuel that he's searching for a man after his own heart, and he found that person in David. See, the affliction that David is going through is nothing more than proving what is inside, that God's evaluation of people is spot on and that he never misses. When God says, this man is after my own heart, he's not wrong. And he's proving it here in this scene. But these interactions with Saul is also giving a testimony to all of Israel. Remember, there's an audience that's reading this book who is following after King David and descendants of his line. And there's a message in this book to people that would consider themselves part of God's kingdom. And those, those messages are, what does righteousness look like in God's kingdom? What is it actually? What does God expect of His King and His people? What does it mean actually to be a man after God's own heart? What, what does that, that mean? See, God's kingdom, it appears in this passage, consists of people who want to please God and therefore, when they sin, have hearts of contrition. It turns out that what it means to be a man after God's own heart does not mean you're perfect. And when I say a man after God's own heart, I mean also a woman. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It means that your heart is contrite over sin. David himself will later say in Psalm 51, verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. 
See, at the root of what it means to be a genuine follower of Christ is to have contrition over your sin. In fact, there is no way Christ can be followed unless the heart of a person strikes him first. There is no way that you can claim to follow Christ unless a heart of contrition has struck you first. See, you can have your theological ducks in a row. You can have your end times position all figured out. You can have the doctrine of salvation all mapped out in your mind. You can understand what a church is and what it's not. You can come to church every time the doors are open. You can hear every sermon. You can memorize every passage of Scripture. You can share the gospel with as many people as you come in contact with. But if you have no sorrow, no remorse, no acknowledgement, no actual contrition over your sin, you don't know Jesus. Period. See, there are also people who will wander in the opposite direction, too. Initially, there is contrition over their sin, but then it was undealt with, and contrition turned to wallowing in shame. And from there, it can turn into bitterness, perhaps it can turn into depression, maybe it can turn into self pity. And before long, that person looks up and has forgotten altogether what the gospel actually is. And now, for them, coming to church is just about making me feel bad. It's a woe-is-me trip. They're worried about what God thinks of them. Does He love me? Does He care for me? But at some point, you have to hear the good news of the gospel. See, every Christian in this room could name sins that he or she has committed, maybe even committed this very day, that makes us shudder to think about them, that brings so much shame to us that we, we, we just want to push it out of our mind. Just the thought that I ever did this, or just the thought that I ever said that, or just the thought that I ever thought those things, brings me such shame. But the good news of Jesus is that Christ is there to forgive even me. Even as I look at all of those things, even as my sin is ever before me, and I think about all those things that I've done in the past, and all those things that were a part of my past, maybe my present, probably still my future. The good news of the gospel says Jesus died for all of your sins, not just some of them. And when he died, all of your sins were in the future. You understand. That no matter the atrocity, no matter the offense, God offers me forgiveness in Christ. Now, does that excuse the sin? No, far from it. The good news is that the sin was actually paid for. The sin's not excused. It's not, it's not washed away simply of God sweeping it under the rug as my children clean their room. That's not how it was done. No, it was actually paid for. That's the reason it's washed away. 
not swept under the rug, actually paid for. It also doesn't mean that I'll never face any earthly consequences for sin. It doesn't mean that even though I could rectify my sin, I don't need to because, you know what, God has forgiven me and that's enough so I can just move on no matter who my sin has offended. It doesn't mean that either. No, in fact, it means quite the opposite. That's not even what David is doing here. He has committed this, what he sees as a transgression against the Lord's anointed. And what does he immediately do? He turns to his army, who he's just done this in front of, and he rectifies the situation. He sets it right. And he says, look, we're not going to even reach out our hand against the Lord's anointed because he is the Lord's anointed. See, what it actually means is that though there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, if I trust and I believe that there really is no condemnation for me, then if I've got to eat crow in front of somebody because of my sin, I can eat it. You know why? Because God has forgiven me. If I have to humiliate myself in front of somebody and really humble myself down, then I'll be the fool because God calls me beloved. So understanding the gospel doesn't mean you get to sweep away your sin. No, no. It means you can now own it. Not pridefully, but humbly. Just as David does here. See, in this scene, God is giving everyone a picture of what it looks like to be a part of His kingdom. This is what it means to be a part of my kingdom. It's, it's inward righteousness. It's a heart that's actually changed. And, and he's showing them what it means to be a part of his kingdom with a king whom he has selected to rule his people. David's remorse is not, not even necessarily a sin as we would look at it properly, but he understands what he has done even in cutting off Saul's robe is sin and he feels immensely guilty about even the thought that he might have of taking Saul's life. And his sensitivity is that he would ever reach out and strike the Lord's anointing. And it has nothing to do with Saul himself. Or even the fact that Saul, I mean, as we're reading the passage, don't we see, like, Saul deserves to die, right? Like, I mean, he's kind of a scumbag, all right? I think if he, David would have killed him there, we'd have been like, well, that's the end of Saul. And we'd all been fine with it. But it's not because he's Saul or there's something special about him, but because God has chosen him. It's about the God behind the person is the reason David is offended by it or changed by it. Because God has chosen to put Saul in this position as king over Israel, and David doesn't see it as his place to remove him, nor anyone else's for that matter. So Saul leaves the cave, and he gets a safe distance away. And David calls out to him, and David's got the corner of Saul's robe in his hand as he calls out to him. And this is the question that David poses to him. Look at verse 9. Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Do you understand what the men are, are doing there when they're advising Saul? They're looking at David on the outside, and they're assuming they know his inward motivations. He seeks to do you harm. Okay. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. 
For, the, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. Think about it just for a second. The entire purpose of David calling out to Saul from where he is with the corner of his robe in his hand is to prove his own genuineness of heart. That's the whole reason he's calling out to Saul is to prove that his heart is genuine and that he doesn't want to kill Saul. You're listening to the wrong people, Saul. If, if I wanted you dead, I could have taken you in that cave, but I have no desire to take your life. You see, the proof of David's genuine heart is seen not only in his contrition in the cave, but it actually works its way out to his actions. And that's what he's saying to Saul. My actions should prove they're a window into my heart. See, outward appearances are not everything, but they do sometimes provide a glimpse into what's inside. And David is saying that glimpse you should see is that my heart does not desire to kill you. I'm not trying to strike you dead, or I could have. Saul gets down to the point of the passage in verse 17, and he says just very plainly what is the purpose of this story. He said to David, verse 17, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hand. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? See, even Saul recognized, that's crazy that you let me go. I can't believe that. So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. Now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. You see that? Saul recognizes the righteousness of David. And for that reason... He says, the kingdom will be established in your hand. The point is that David is not merely God's replacement king. It's not like he's taking Saul down off the throne and just going, well, let's try another one. That's not what he's doing. David is the king God has selected, not because outwardly he's impressive, because he's going to shock anybody when he walks up? No, it's because inwardly his heart loves and desires the Lord. And that's proven first in the contrition that he feels in the cave, but then in his actions following. This is a window into what's going on in my heart. I have no desire to kill you. So his earnest desire is to follow the Lord. And it's made manifest before Saul, even as Saul draws attention to it. So God has said that David is a man after his own heart. And everyone else in the book has looked at David and said, you're wicked, you're evil, I see what's in your heart, you want to kill the king, I know why you've come out here, it's because your presumption and your evil heart that you're here. Everyone has looked at David and judged him completely wrong, even Samuel the prophet and here in this passage, God has already said, David is a man after my own heart. He desires me and he loves me. And this chapter is the receipts. He's proving it to everyone. This is what I mean. This is what it actually means to follow after me. 
See, God is doing something here in the recording of this word that's powerfully important. And if you're not asking the right questions, you'll miss it. One thing we want to practice when reading our Bible is asking why this story is recorded here. No doubt there are many noteworthy stories and events that could have taken place along the way as David's running from Saul. I'm sure there are hundreds upon hundreds of different stories that could have been recorded here if the goal was just merely to grab your attention and interest you and give you factual information. But that's not what's happening in the Bible. Not in, any, not in this chapter, not in any chapter. The stories that are recorded in the Bible are there because they're making a point to you they're proving something to you. As we look at the simplicity of this story, there's the theme that's running through it jumps off the page. See, it's two scenes. One scene is in the cave, and the second is while Saul is out of the cave. In the first scene, the big revelation is that David is convicted because he reached out and he touched the king. That's the first few verses, first seven or eight verses. Even if it was just the corner of his robe, he feels guilty. He's crushed in the heart. He apparently wanted to kill him. Maybe he thought about killing him. But he was convicted that this would be disobedience to God because Saul is the Lord's anointed. And so David's heart is a heart that bends to the Lord's will. That's the first scene in the cave. In the second scene, this conversation between David and Saul, David proves that his own private motivations are not to seek Saul's harm. And that the counsel around Saul that's telling him that David wants to kill him is wrong. As if they can read David's heart. But David's actions prove what's in his heart. Saul's counsel doesn't know what's in David's heart. Yet they presume they do. Only the Lord knows. And so David appeals at the end of his conversation with Saul. He appeals to the Lord. The Lord be the judge between us. Because obviously you don't know what's going on. So the Lord be the judge between us. And when Saul speaks, he declares David more righteous than him. But further, and this is the linchpin of the story, because David's heart has proven more righteous than Saul, it's that moment where Saul says, Surely the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Why? Because of the righteousness of the king. In other words, Saul is stating plainly what we should in the New Testament know all too well. God's kingdom is going to be established on the back of a righteous king. And it's not a righteous king that is one outwardly, merely. It's one who is righteous inwardly. Because what is God actually looking at? How does he determine righteousness? Is it on the outward appearance, the way things look and feel? Is it things that can be judged by the senses? No. Saul is recognizing, at least momentarily, he's going to come after David much later on, but momentarily he recognizes that it's because of David's uprightness of heart that he will be king over God's people and God will establish his hand. See, the whole story is proving what God said was true of David from the beginning and it's setting a precedence that God's kingdom will be built around his righteous king, one whose heart is bent after God's own heart rather than bent towards sin. 
This isn't merely a story about loving one's enemies. It appears that way on the outside, and it certainly is making that point, no doubt. But it's not merely a story about loving one's enemies. This is a story about the kind of righteousness God actually cares about. The question is, what's going on in your heart? I I get it. It's easy to be a Christian in America. It's really easy. You can walk in the doors of this church and you don't pay anything for it. Socially, your friends aren't going to bat an eye. There's nobody waiting on the outside of this building to kill you because you're a Christian. There's there's absolutely no cost you have to bear in America to be a Christian. So it's easy to come in here to sing songs, to memorize the words, to memorize the scriptures, to read the Bible, to listen to the sermon, to be very attentive, to take notes, to do whatever it is that you think looks like righteousness. What does God see when he looks at you? How is he measuring righteousness? And the answer is, across all the pages of Scripture, he's cutting through all the outward appearances and looking straight at the heart. And the question then we have to ask is, what does he find when he looks there? Well, let me just answer that for all of us. It's going to be a mixed bag. He's going to find a lot of twisted motivations. He's going to find a lot of corruption. He's going to find a lot of bitterness. He's going to find a lot of anger. He's going to find a lot of envy. He's going to find a lot of lust and greed, pride. He's going to find a lot of selfishness, hatred even. He's going to find a lot of fighting with our friends. He's going to find a lot of bickering and gossip. When God looks at our heart, he's going to see wickedness. So what is the solution then? How, how is that remedy? Because you, can't, you see, I can't stand up here to any of us, even if I was sitting on the front pew preaching to myself, I can't stand up here and say, be better. How can I be better? I've already corrupted what God has given me. Every single one of us is guilty of sin. But what God is doing in Christ is establishing His kingdom on the back of one righteous person. One completely righteous person. David's going to mess up. All right? David's a picture right now of righteousness. He did what was right. He didn't didn't reach out and kill his enemy. He didn't treat this person badly. He didn't strike against the Lord's anointed or anything like that. Oh, but later on, he's going to go off the rails. Because it turns out every king along the way is going to mess up. Until we get to Christ, and it's in Jesus that that we see a life perfectly lived according to the righteous standard God has. Not one who's merely one righteous outwardly, but also inwardly. It's both and. The, the, The real good part, though, of Jesus is that he doesn't keep his righteous life for himself, but he takes that righteousness 
to the cross and there suffers the wrath of God that he did not deserve for you, for all the bitterness of heart, for all the twisted motivations, for all the pride and anger and jealousy and greed. He died for all of it and forgave you so that your punishment rests on his shoulders and not yours. So then, if we're included in the kingdom of Christ, if we place our trust and hope in Him, what He gives to us is the gift of His Spirit. And so now, because the Spirit of God dwells inside of us, He motivates us towards pleasing God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. But with the Spirit of God, it is now possible to please God. So that now it is possible to live an upright life, a life that is motivated toward righteousness. But it only comes first by recognizing that by His grace and mercy am I included in His kingdom to begin with. That I have no right to forgiveness. That I have nothing good in and of myself. But that God has given to me of His Spirit. And it's only by that gracious gift that I could ever please Him. See, the gospel is that the true king, the righteous one, died for us. But here's the further connection to this passage. Jesus didn't die for his friends. He died for his enemies. See, Jesus takes what David does one step further. Not only does he spare the life of his enemies, he dies for them. Paul tells us this in Romans 5, 7-10. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. We were enemies, and Christ died for us. Now the question to us, Christians. If your actions provide a window into what's going on in the inside, how do you treat your enemies? The ones who are opposed to you. Don't get pious on me. We all got enemies, all right? I'm not talking about the enemies that you chase down in a cave and you try to kill, all right? Enemies biblically, anybody that you're opposed to, anybody that has a different worldview than you or different way of looking at things or you're opposed to them in one way or another. If your treatment of your enemies was a window into your heart, then what would we be able to say is going on in there? See, if Christ died for us, his enemies, then what should we as people that follow after him do to our enemies? Should we treat them with contempt? Do David's men have a right to reach out and strike Saul? No. If we follow after the true king, how should we treat our enemies? Perhaps with the same kind of love and affection that Christ treated his enemies with. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our desire 
we confess is mixed. But I pray by your spirit, our desires would be moved to repentance and faith and obedience. That our desires, by the grace and mercy of your spirit, would turn our hearts from hearts of bitterness, hearts of strife, envy, greed, lust, whatever they may be, to hearts of compassion, genuine Christ-honoring love, affection, that we might live for the good of others, for the blessing of others, as we share with them the gospel of grace and hope and mercy. May we live it out in front of them in the way that we treat those around us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.